Health Matters with Laura Kopeck focuses on how we can take some of the most confusing matters of our health into our own hands. I'm your host, Laura Kopeck, and today is a discussion about all those crazy diets and food elimination programs. A reminder, this episode and all my podcasts are for educational, entertainment, and informational purposes only, and is not a substitute for medical advice or medical diagnosis. My name is Laura Kopeck, and I'm a functional nutritionist, traditional naturopath, health educator, mentor, coach, author, and public speaker. I've been in private practice since 2009, after being a, a teacher before that, and I continue to see my primary task as an educator to help resolve some of the myths and mistakes about health, especially in preventative health and what we can do to make a real difference in managing our own health. Today we're going to talk about several popular health diets and what they mean and whether or not they might be appropriate for you and how long you should do them for and why. The science of nutrition is still considered in its infancy and since beginning an ongoing personal passion for the science since I was 18 years old, which is now over 30 years of geeking out on this stuff, I can say it's not any less confusing and there's so much more to talk about these days. While I could take you all the way back, I'm gonna talk about some of the more trending health diets. This includes gluten-free, grain-free, paleo, Whole30, AIP, low FODMAPs, low histamine, keto, keto-ish or low carb, to name a few. Okay, let's get started. Okay, let's talk about gluten first gluten-free. Gluten is a protein contained in certain grains like wheat. In fact, if you live in this country, the main and probably only exposure to gluten is in wheat or white flour products. This includes breads, pasta, pizza crust, cookies, crackers, pretzels, and some breakfast cereals, but not all. The biggest dietary mistake people make is when they find out they need to be gluten-free and go out and buy gluten-free products. Being free of gluten doesn't mean you have to buy gluten-free products. It means you need to withdraw gluten from your diet. And the reason is, is first, a lot of these gluten-free products do not taste very good. And second, most are just a better processed food, but they're still a processed food. And depending on the reason underneath the need to be gluten-free, you may not be resolving your health issue, but only making it less noticeable. Let's talk briefly, because I can do a whole podcast on gluten and most likely will. Uh, but for now, let's highlight this so we can get to other diets. Celiac disease, to clarify, is an autoimmune disease, which is a diagnosis that can only be confirmed with a biopsy. Otherwise, most diagnoses revolve around antibody detection, genetic predisposition, and symptoms. When someone goes into autoimmune, there's usually another underlying issue that needs to be pursued. That's why about 70% of celiacs do not feel more than a 30 to 50% improvement to their overall health. But what happens when you test negative for celiac? and you know you have problems with gluten, or you test negative for an allergy to gluten, 
and you think, well, maybe that wasn't it. Currently, there are about seven different tests showing different ways to have issues with gluten, six of those falling under what we could basically generalize as a non-celiac gluten sensitivity or intolerance. These kinds of tests can be related to antibodies, peptides, enzymes, genetics, and more. If you get one or two of these tests done and see that you don't test positive, that may mean you still actually have an issue with gluten, but in a different area that maybe you didn't test for. So you could spend hundreds of dollars getting all seven tests done, or you could just eliminate gluten to see what happens. The second problem, aside from the assumptions on limited testing, is the time that people eliminate for. So here's a little bit of a rundown on how eliminations should go. If you're looking to see if gluten affects your digestion, such as symptoms of constipation, bloating, or reflux, eliminate for a minimum of 60 days, then reintroduce. It's really not enough to eliminate for two weeks and see if that corrects the problem. Then reintroduction is where you'll most likely see the issue return, not on the elimination, but on the reintroduction, unless you definitely feel completely better on the elimination. I don't say reintroduce, but if you're really struggling with thinking whether or not there was resolution, reintroduce. If you want to see if removing gluten improves blood-related issues like headaches or mental health issues such as anxiety or attention disorders or brain fog or memory issues or hormonal imbalances, then really 120-day elimination minimum. If you want to see if you have a reduction in autoimmune antibodies, you need at least two years of an elimination which, yeah, that's a long time to wait and see if a diet change works. When gluten was first discovered as a problem food, people eliminated it and they felt better. And then gluten-free foods arrived. And then people went back to eating processed foods and felt bad. And then different diets like paleo came on the scene and people got better. And then paleo hit the packaged food scene. And then again, people felt bad. So you think there's a connection to whole and clean food? I do. When scientists study longevity and they come up with things like people live longer if they eat seafood or drink wine, what they fail to really discuss is the lifestyle of those diets. For example, most places that have longevity still buy their food at open markets, have little to no refrigeration, and they eat locally sourced foods. They eat with intention, take their time with meals, and have a different pace and appreciation to life. Okay, back to diets. Paleo was essentially brought back into the public eye by an anthropologist. Essentially, Paleolithic man, the hunter and gatherer, had very little chronic and degenerative diseases. So maybe this idea of eating this way is better for our health. Grains and legumes, beans, have evolved to be much harder to digest and much more inflammatory. So paleo means no grains, no dairy, no legumes, no sugar, basically cuts out the most inflammatory foods in developed countries. Extreme paleo does not eat 
even root vegetables like potato. But mistakes get made pretty quickly because, well, bacon is not paleo-legal if it contains sugar, and carbs made from almond flour, well, are those really the lifestyle of a hunter-gatherer? So extreme paleo on a daily basis may not be sustainable, and paleo itself is a great way to break the habit of high carbs and lots of processed food. So paleo is not great if you go from eating heavy carbs to heavy amounts of animal proteins and don't learn to eat vegetables, which essentially help neutralize the acidity of animal proteins. As paleo became more and more trendy and popular and paleo-legal packaged foods started to become part of health food stores, again, the popularity of bringing in processed and packaged foods can create some problems. So then there came on the scene something called Whole30. Well, Whole30 is essentially paleo without any packaged or processed foods. It also includes abstaining from alcohol and caffeine, and again, all packaged food. The intention of this was to get people to commit to 30 days. It takes 21 days to make or break a habit. So 30 days, great sense. Whole30 makes a great twice a year cleanse in spring and fall, or a weekly commitment to good clean eating with a little bit of respite on the weekends. So something like paleo or Whole30, it is sustainable over time, and you don't even have to commit to eating red meat. You can cut out some of the harder to digest animal proteins. You can even be pescatarian. Okay, a little side on the classifications. Pescatarians eat only seafood as their animal protein and abstain from all other proteins. This can be very helpful if you want a cardiovascular, heart-friendly diet, or you have hormonal imbalances, as long as you're combining some of the aspects of paleo, because technically pescatarians can eat grains, but again, grains are more inflammatory than they were before. Vegetarians consider themselves broadly, such as some vegetarians avoid all animal protein from animal flesh, so they still eat egg or dairy, um, but vegans avoid all animal products. Okay, back to diets. Keto is super popular these days, but mostly as an overused term for being low carb. You're not doing keto if you're not in nutritional ketosis. And nutritional ketosis is not sustainable and carries health risks, such as dipping into ketoacidosis. But a modified keto, where you're essentially low carb, can be beneficial, but it can offer very little health benefits except weight loss if, again, you don't combine it with some clean eating. So here are a few examples and clarifications. Ketosis can happen around 60 grams or less of total carbs, depending on the individual, somewhere around 40 grams or below. There is uh, greater health risks. There was a reason this diet used to be considered medically supervised. Health risks, acidosis being one, include things like frequent UTIs or bladder infections, something called keto flu, or chronic constipation from excessive animal proteins, gout, and sometimes even stress fractures. But most people think and say they're doing keto, but, but they're not. 
so that's probably a good thing. But we still should know what the terminology means. Most people that are doing what they call keto are doing paleo if they're clean eating. But the other mistake is it is someone who's just counting their carbs. And instead of doing their 40 to 60 grams, including nutrient-rich foods like dark leafy greens and rich in color fruits, someone could make the mistake of having a glass of wine for their carb allowance or a piece of cake and then forego the rest of the carbs for the day. And technically they fall within the carb allowance keto range, but is that really healthy? Okay, let's move into low FODMAPs. This is looking at the molecular structure of food in regards to glucose, fructose, and saccharides. Saccharides are a naturally occurring molecule, and some foods can be categorized as monosaccharides or disaccharides. Others are polysaccharides. In a low FODMAPs diet, the idea is to avoid most of the foods high in these kinds of naturally occurring sugar molecules, but also portion control some of them to give a little bit more flexibility to this diet. Why is this diet recommended? And why is it the most prescribed diet by dietitians and gastrointestinal specialists? Well, for one, it's a fairly low inflammatory diet with pretty good results almost immediately if your symptoms are bloating, gas, and constipation. Because a lot of these sugar molecules do not digest smoothly when eaten in abundance or even on a daily basis. And so the gut ferments instead of digest these foods. Fermentation releases excess amounts of methane gas. Methane gas is that stuff that floats above landfill as stuff rots. So if too much methane builds in a person's gut, it can lead to a host of problems. The most obvious is bloating. So if you have bloating, this is probably the number one symptom to over-fermentation of food that you're eating. The other symptoms may or may not be present. Uh, Some people can have constipation with high methane gas. Some necessarily don't. But bloating is a pretty sure sign that there's excessive uh, methane gas building up. Low FODMAPs, if combined with a functional wellness protocol, can be a temporary elimination diet. Because imagine the inflammation in methane buildup turns a digestive tube into a funnel. Well, a funnel doesn't flow a lot at one time. It goes slow and easy, can also overflow too fast. So low FODMAPs helps reduce the inflammation of the funnel back to a better working tube or tunnel. But if the integrity of the tube was damaged over time and repair supplements are not taken, then a person may have to stay on low FODMAPs to keep away their symptoms. I do think it's possible to reduce the inflammation, repair the gut, then slowly introduce foods again, and then only avoid the significant triggers. Low histamine diet. Again, if properly recommended with support supplements, this is a temporary diet to help reduce the amount of histamine in the body. Having an issue with histamines doesn't mean you have seasonal allergies. Histamines can affect gut or mood, contributing to high anxiety and even depression. 
It can lead to mast cell activation, which can have other potential health consequences if not addressed. Imagine the histamine is the overflow to the funnel or an overflow to a bucket. So there does not have to be a funnel or an issue with methane gas to have high histamine issues, but they can exist together. High histamines that overflow to the bucket can come and go, so it's important to know a low histamine diet is not a forever diet, but a way of managing your high histamine levels when they get out of control. So how do you know if you have high histamine issues with food? Well, you might have any or a combination of the following. Skin issue, a redness in your face or your skin from food, high blood pressure, a racing heart with eating certain foods, a generalized anxiety, anxiety with certain foods, possible link to autoimmune, and a host of digestive inflammation symptoms, and possibly even a diagnosis. Sometimes I have clients that temporarily have to combine low FODMAPs with low histamines. Sometimes just eliminating processed foods and leftovers resolves the issues. Yes, leftovers. The longer food sits in the refrigerator, the more opportunity for histamines and bacteria to be an issue. Circling back to cultures with the highest longevity, they don't eat packaged, processed foods, and have no leftovers in their fridge. Well, here's a tip for you if you're budget conscious like I am, and if you want to make sure that you can not waste foods, If you want to see if you have a problem with leftovers, but don't want your leftovers to go to waste, freeze your food if not eaten within 24 hours of being cooked. Then just bring it out that morning if you want to eat it sometime that day. The freezer stops the histamine process and then allows you not to waste food. Okay, lastly, AIP stands for autoimmune paleo. One of the strictest diet out there of course, unless you're a combined low FODMAP, low histamine. But here's what I can tell you about autoimmune as it relates to food and digestion. In autoimmune, there's a dysregulation in the way the immune system talks to itself and mistakenly turn against a particular organ in the body. It is a little bit like an immune system hamster wheel. And while diagnostic medicine sees the diagnosis as the the end of the road, it's important to know that AIP elimination diet may help a person's symptoms resolve themselves. So even if they're still producing antibodies, it's a much more controlled autoimmune. Why? Well, certain foods, again, can trigger an inflammatory response in the body. Sometimes, the inflammatory response in the body is connected to the immune response. COVID is a great example of a virus that is confusing to treat because it is not just the infection, but the inflammation and immune response that has to be managed and supported. For reasons we will study and are trying to figure out, foods engage the immune system. AIP lists all those foods that have a potential to do this in the person. So, Sometimes it's not all those foods, but sometimes it is necessary to start with the complete list of elimination on AIP and do it for a while and then see what kind of symptom calming or resolution there exists before introducing. 
sometimes if there's enough calm for the body responses to recalibrate, at the very least, symptoms are reduced. Sometimes there's a complete resolution to antibodies. Take RA, for example. Often a person's antibodies can increase or decrease, sometimes decrease to being inactive if the immune system is supported correctly. This has shown itself to be the case with several of my clients engaging in AIP for a period of time, monitoring their antibodies to see what point the inflammation and immune system recalibrate. Exciting and so interesting. The power of food. The power of food as a tool for improving our health is really amazing. Look, if we think the answers lie in a pill or even a diagnosis, which often debilitates our participation in resolving our symptoms, then we're going to lose the ability to take charge of our own health, especially the places where we can. Our hands are not tied. While confusing, yes, there are practitioners and educators who can help. There are small or big changes we can make. We get to decide. We get to decide how much of our health we want to address when it comes to diet. We get to decide what we want to do. But to ignore diet as a fundamental part of our health is where we lose the personal power that comes from taking charge of our own health. I wish you curiosity when it comes to food and resolving some of your imbalances and your health issues. It can only start the process of thinking about the power of food and its impact on your health and wellness. I am Laura Kopeck, and I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Health Matters. If you click on the link in the episode description, you'll find a page of the different elimination diets I spoke of in today's episode. There are different versions online, so choose wisely. But again, if you want my educational recommendation, click on the link in the description. And I hope you join me again for another episode of Health Matters.